Jesus had quite a following. People would come from great distances. Some who were religious, some who weren't even close were nonetheless mesmerized by the things people said about this rabbi from Nazareth. This one who seemed to have the power of healing. This one whom, who seemed to upset the religious authorities of his day. The people, the common people, smiled when they heard that because the authorities were often very hard on them. And this Jesus, they had been told, spoke with an authority not like those other people. And he told stories. Oh, the stories he told. That enraptured people's hearts and drew up in them and then brought forth from them their greatest aspirations. But as the crowd got larger, Jesus's teaching edge got sharper. And Matthew's gospel says that towards the very end of his three years of public ministry, and I quote, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day, be raised to life. This was not part of the program, even as disciples thought. They were going to Jerusalem to take over. They were clearly going to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. They were obviously going up to the holy city in order to take their places of honor, as they should have had them all along that had been occupied by this invading army. So hearing what Jesus said, the scriptures say, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This, this shall never happen to you. What Jesus then said in the face of this Apparent devotion, this commitment to his well-being, forces me personally to have to think again about what faithfulness really looks like. It forces me to redefine faithfulness in terms that I don't think I would ever get to by myself if you left me alone to ponder it. The Bible says that Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's an amazing statement in its context because just a few moments before, he had told Peter that he was the rock on which he would build the early church. He had asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he had asked them, who do you think I am? And Peter had raised his hands and said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus had smiled and said, that's right. 
And on this rock, this confession, I will build my church. And then moments later, he says to the same man, get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, for you're not the rock. You're a stumbling block to me. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. And then Jesus said one of the most famous things, one of the most radical things he ever, ever uttered. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life or her life, meaning as it is now, is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life or her life for me will find it. There are few words that Jesus ever spoke that strike me scarier (laughs) than those ones. Those ones there are really, really disturbing if you take them in. And especially, I think, if you contrast them with some of the other invitations that Jesus issues along the way. When Jesus says, as he does many times to people during the course of his earthly ministry, come dine with me. Zacchaeus, get out of that tree. Come down here. We're going to have lunch. Come dine with me. When he says that, I hear him saying, come, experience my fulfillment. And I'm pleased to say yes. When Christ says, come do life with me, as he so often said. Come follow me. Come and see. Come journey with me. Let's do life together. Come experience the difference my companionship will make in your life. Many of us, I suspect, if we hear that invitation as we've heard it through the whisper of his spirit, many of us are intrigued by that. When Jesus says, come dance with me, come experience my joy, he did say this. He said, I've said everything that I'm teaching you, that you might know my joy, that my joy might be in you, and you're joyful. When Jesus says, come dance with me in this way, it seems like a really good idea that I should follow him. But when he says what he says here, when he says, come die with me, come take up a cross with me, come experience my death There's something in almost all of us, certainly in me, that wants to cry out with the Apostle Peter and say, never, Lord. Not that, Lord. How about you? I think this is really only natural, if you think about it. I think that from the cradle to the grave... We are always being taught that the goal of life is to preserve it. Am I wrong? From the moment we're first strapped into our 
child safety seats in the car to the day that we're lying in a hospital room with tubes in our bodies. The continual message is preserve, protect, sustain, secure. It's part of what upsets us so much about the wanton violence going on in Ukraine or on the streets of our city because it runs against this instinct that says everybody ought to preserve and protect and sustain and secure life as much as possible. It's not simply the maintenance of life, but it's continual maximization that we're taught in American life today. From early on, we absorbed this message that the quality of one's life is directly related to the quantity of life enhancements we've been able to secure. Our lives come to be defined by these enhancements, by the titles and the trophies we amass and the pleasures and the privileges we enjoy and the sheepskins and the shape of our skin and our castles and our credit scores. And then along comes Jesus. Along comes this Jesus and he tells us that we would do better to redefine our life. That we've defined our life too superficially and too selfishly and too stupidly. And he looks us right into the eyes as he looked into the eyes of the Pharisees and he tells us that we're barely touching life as God really intended it. He tells us to get off the fence that we've been walking between doing it the world's way and doing it God's way, the way of the kingdom. Jesus challenges us to seek to serve rather than to be served. He tells us to, to check our box and our bags for the things that we've been carrying so very long that we don't even see how burdened and blocked we are by them. Jesus calls us to patrol the pleasures that we've been allowing ourselves that have invaded our perimeter and conquered our hearts in many cases. He says to us, I don't want you just to accept grace. I want you to complete the circle of grace and not just demand it for yourself because you've got a ticket to heaven. These are the things we've been exploring all throughout this Lenten season, these hard sayings of Jesus and the refrain again and again as those tough teachings have settled into us is no wonder they crucified him. No wonder. If we're truly hearing Jesus, then we rightly recognize that the coming of Christ requires somebody's death. If we're going to follow Jesus through the gates of the kingdom... And I'm not just talking about heaven here. I'm talking about the way of life that he wants us to have and to experience and to extend to others right here. If we're going to be born anew into this life of God, then the way we've been taught to define life and, and think of life and that we naturally tend to come at life or even at ourselves, well, that way, it's got to die, says Jesus. And it has to be lost and it has to be named and it has to be nailed and it has to be annihilated and that we instinctively recognize is going to be painful. 
and hard. I've just tried to give up alcohol during Lent. That's killing me. <laughs> After two years of COVID. <laughs> and how much more does he want me to let go of? How much more of the anesthetic and the false security and the false significance and the false success does he want me to sacrifice, to die to, that I might be born to this greater kind of life. How many of you are familiar with the last words of Jesus from the cross? Have you heard that, the seven last words? You probably know them. You've probably heard them spoken of. But what I want us to understand is that what Jesus is asking of us is something like the experience, into the experience he had upon the cross. He wants us to exercise some profound humility and some courageous perseverance in the way that we see him carrying his cross. We're meant to exercise that kind of perseverance in the way we love others in our world today. It means that we're going to experience, if we follow him, periods of terrible thirsting for the substances that used to slake our thirst in the deepest kind of way. It's going to mean times when we feel utterly forsaken by our Heavenly Father. It's going to put us in a place of temporary vulnerability before the soldiers and the mocking crowds of this world who will rejoice, perhaps, that we're struggling. It's going to mean cleaving to our spiritual family the way Mary and John were called by Christ from the cross to really hold on to each other. It's going to require a daily commitment of our own spirits into the Father's hands, into thy hands, Father. I commit my spirit. We're going to have to, before we get out of bed every morning, say, God, it's going to be a hard one living for you today. I give you my spirit today. Into your hands. It will mean trusting and obeying and letting God work in and through us until that's completed and we can say, it's finished. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. George MacDonald was a tremendous Scottish preacher, a marvelous poet as well, and he once wrote these words. He says it's really important to grasp that Christ died to save us not from suffering but from ourselves. When I read that the first time I thought, wow, that's, that's like a new thought for me because I kind of think of the cross as, wow, that's the place where Jesus took the suffering so I don't have to. I like a world where I don't have to suffer. But McDonald says, no, 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 he didn't do that to save us from suffering although he did that was a merciful thing that he took my place there and your place there but he's mainly desiring to save us from the the continual daily kind of struggle and suffering that comes with living with this false self with this sixth kind of self so mcdonald goes on and says he he, he died not to 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 save us from injustice or justice, from, for, but to save us from being unjust. 
He, he died that we might live, but live as he lives. By dying as he died, who died to himself, that he might live unto God. Do you think there were moments when he was hanging on the cross where he thought to himself, it would just take a twinkle of my eye and I could change this whole scene. I could step down from this cross. I could obliterate these enemies. I could summon angel armies and the pain would be over. Don't you think it might have crossed his mind? He was a human being after all. But I think he died to it. I think he crucified it in himself if it came up that way, as it would have in me. McDonald goes on to say, if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to God. And he that does not live unto God is dead. Is the walking dead, we might say. During Holy Week, Uh, We're accustomed, I know, to focus on the death that the Palm Sunday crowd eventually called for. You remember what they said? Let Barabbas go. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. But it is equally crucial that we also remember the death that Jesus called for. Die to self. And come after me. And this death that Christ calls for, I'm convinced, is a price really worth paying. It's the path to communion with God himself. It's the road to an eternal kind of peace and hope and prosperity. It's the only way to gain a truly unshakable faith, an unconquerable hope, a life-changing love that is more precious than anything the crowds are chasing after. But this is what Jesus makes really clear. This life doesn't come from simply wearing a cross. It doesn't come from simply wearing one around our neck. It comes from bearing a cross. We have to crucify the sinful self that wants to own us and dominate us and if possible, through us, dominate other people. No wonder when people caught the glimpse of the edge of what Jesus was really asking for. No wonder some of the, even the disciples said, never, Lord, I don't like this path that you're talking about. I think that sometimes I would like to have the Da Vinci Code Jesus Do you remember that movie? Did any of you ever read that book, The Da Vinci Code? The the Da Vinci Code, Jesus, as you may recall, was, was an interesting figure. He was somebody who would never do something as radical as denying himself the pleasure of sex. And so, of course, he had some times with Mary Magdalene. In fact, he even married her, and they had a child. The Da Vinci Code, Jesus' gospel, was about touching the divine through physical pleasures and fertility. 
Oh, I can see why that would be a popular Jesus. I think that Jesus lives in Las Vegas. So if I can view the church of Jesus even in the Da Vinci Code way as just this collection of corrupt and, 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 and misguided and unfit people who have nothing to offer and nothing to teach me, and you know what? There are some like that in the church, but that's not the church. If I can character spiritual disciplines as some sort of sick, twisted masochism instead of the actual tools for health and for staying connected with Christ in our daily life, if I can take the parts of the biblical Jesus that I really like, the ones that sort of reinforce my lifestyle, my politics, my preferences, if I can just take those that leave me feeling spiritual, without much cost, and I can ignore the hard sayings of Jesus, if I can wear a cross as jewelry without feeling any need to bear a cross as a disciple, then I can pretty much go on with my life as I have it. And I can keep the self I have. But can I make a confession to you? I mean, just between us here. I don't always like the self I have. My wife doesn't always like the self I have. My kids, my coworkers. And so in my clearest moments, you know, I want a better self. I do. I want a more Jesus-like self. What about you? What about you? Don't you want the kind of self that Jesus shows us? The kind of humanity, the kind of possibility for life and love and living like Jesus. Don't you want that kind of life, that abundant life, that kingdom life that Jesus says can be born in you, the kind of self that he apparently gave to Arlen D. Williams Jr. Do you know him? Have you heard of Arlen D. Williams Jr.? If you spent any time in Washington, D.C., or at least enough time in Washington, you might know there's actually a bridge by that name that goes across the Potomac River, the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Bridge. I was not far from there on January the 13th, 1982. And I remember that afternoon when Air Florida Flight 90 iced up on takeoff and crashed into those icy waters of the Potomac. January 13th, 1982. It was 4.01 in the afternoon. I was at my girlfriend's apartment. We were getting ready to cook dinner. I probably could have walked over to the crash site, actually. It would not have been hard to do that if I really wanted to. But I wasn't motivated to do that because there was a snowstorm outside. And the dinner smelled good. Understandably, I... I decided to stay inside where it was warm, and so I just watched TV. And I watched on the news the struggle to rescue the very small number of survivors who were treading water for their life in the Potomac. 
Among the survivors of that plane crash was Arland D. Williams Jr. And as the Washington Post tells it, and I'll just go with those words from here, five different times a helicopter dropped a rope to save Williams. And five times Williams grabbed the rope and passed it to save someone else. And when the rope was extended to Williams the sixth time, he could not take hold of it, and he succumbed to the frigid waters. His heroism was not rash, because aware that his own strength was fading, Williams deliberately handed hope to someone else. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, in the most difficult circumstances, Arlen D. Williams Jr. made the choice, I'm going to die to self. And in so doing, he became a glorified life, the kind of life that never truly dies. My friends, there's a bridge there. There is a bridge to life that stands at a place where someone else once made some very deliberate choices. We've named that bridge the cross of Christ. And we gather tonight at the edge of that bridge to remember that when he might have so easily elected otherwise, Jesus chose to pay the ultimate price for human sin so that you and I might be forgiven and have the opportunity to be reunited with God and to live forever with him. As the frigid waters of death swirled around him, Jesus, believe me, Jesus had options. He could have chosen to save his own life. How many times could he have done it? Five times? I think more than five times. But instead, Jesus chose to pass the rope of salvation to someone else to the thief on the cross next to him, and to you and me if we recognize how much we need it, how much we need saving. No one takes my life from me, said Jesus. No one takes it. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down of my own accord. And later on, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, in other words, the best way to multiply your influence and your fruitfulness is to die to yourself. So, watch me die, Jesus said to his disciples. No one's forcing me to do this. The Roman soldiers aren't 
taking this from me. I'm choosing it. I'm choosing it for the new life that my surrender and sacrifice is going to unleash. I remember the day when I was 18 years old. I remember when I was a shivering, selfish kid. And I remember when I took hold of the rope that Jesus offered me. And I think with such awe and gratitude every day now of the cold waters that God drew me out of and the new life he helped me find. And all I would say to you tonight is that if you have never consciously taken hold of that rope before, I beg of you, grab hold of it. You can do it right where you are. Just reach out your heart and say, I take it, Jesus. Thank you so much. I take it. Let God pull you to safety above the waters of sin and death. Let him wrap you in the warm blanket of his family. But once you've done that, don't just stop there. Don't just let the cross be a symbol of the life that Jesus had or that you're going to have one day when you get to heaven. Let the cross be a signpost to the kind of life that Christ wants you to be living this week in this world. Cross over the bridge and into the life of the kingdom. You know the way to that life, don't you? It's the way marked out by Jesus by Arland, by every soul in every home and church and workplace and town who keeps making the difficult choice, which is the disciples' choice. If you would come after me, said Jesus, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So I ask you, what element of your old decaying self is Jesus inviting you to surrender at the foot of his cross tonight? What is it that he's inviting you to leave behind? Let go of these former things so that you can take hold of new life. For I tell you, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, says Jesus, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I pray together we will find it. May God bless this reflection upon his holy word. Amen.